DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability Disability done done different, different. candid conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting. Welcome to Disability Done Different, candid conversations. Welcome, Evie. Thanks. (laughs) Stop welcoming to my own podcast. My name is Evie Nafal and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host Roland Nafal. And today we're joined by Sam Connor, who a lot of people are going to know out there. Sam Connor, famous for a few things which we'll go through in the podcast interview. So welcome, Sam. Hi, people. How are you? Very good. So we've been wanting to have you on our podcast for quite a while, Sam, but because you're so scary, we've, 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 we've taken <laughs> Elusive is the word I would have used. So the actual email to you from us um, didn't even have a Dear Sam on it. It just said, we've been honing our skills in dealing with difficult people, want to be a guest on our podcast. And you responded really quickly with, that would be wildly brave of you, and yes. So... <laughs> This is important context for talking to Sam Connor and you don't strike me as a person that when they're giving you a eulogy, which won't be anytime soon, that they say Sam was a really nice person and that was the main message. It's not something you aspire to be, is it? I once went to a funeral um, of a relative where the only thing that the person could think to say was that she wrapped presents really nicely. (laughs) (laughs) really sad that that's the thing that people are going to remember about you so um so i maintain that if you are going to get someone to give a eulogy it should be the person that hates you the most and then they have to be brutally honest and truthful and they can speak about their terrible personal experiences and they're you're probably going to get a better rounded picture of who that person was so um yeah, so there's a bit of a list of contenders of people who, um, you know, could do my eulogy, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, when, hopefully there's some people we, who object to some of the content from those people. When we're doing our research on you this weekend, Evie found a quote that you retweeted from Martin Luther King. Will you read it, Evie? It was from Martin Luther King's daughter. And she wrote, don't act like everyone loved my father. He was assassinated. A 1967 poll reflected that he was one of the most hated men in America. Many who quote him now and evoke him to deter justice would likely hate or may already hate the authentic king. Why, why did that yeah. touch you? Why did you retweet it, Sam? Well, it was kind of a, a moment where um, I think people, you know, disabled people don't really get to be authors of their own story anyway. Um, and the same thing goes for um, black and people of colour, um, you know, people who are First Nations. So people kind of appropriate your story for their own devices, you know, and craft you into what, they want you to be um and I thought it was a really poignant thing from this woman who sounded a little bit bitter a little bit resentful because her dad had you know her dad was assassinated you know he was hated enough for people to shoot the guy and murder him and so for people to be quoting him and for white people to be quoting him right now in the middle of this um you know what's going on with um George Floyd's death um I understood that that it was a a bit of a bitter moment for her that you know when her dad had been a truth teller and somebody who spoke out about human rights and about black rights. Um, He wasn't loved during his lifetime. So there's a bit of hypocrisy for people after you're dead to turn around and, and make those comments about you or quote you or misquote you. So, yeah, I kind of, I guess that really touched me. And, you know, I think my kids would probably feel the same if people said lots of nice things about me 
after I died. So Sam, we live in a world where, and I think it's almost increasingly, people want to be liked and people are doing all kinds of things to be liked. Yet, I think one of the things you and I have in common, one of the reasons we haven't had too many blues over the years is neither of us are that strongly needing to be liked. We're prepared to be blunt. But on a spectrum of it, you're much more blunt than I am, I think. You're prepared to say the things that you think need to be said. Where did that come from? Where did you learn the ability to get stuff done, to say things that you think need to be said, regardless of whether people like you or not? Well, I think I think one of the important things is that, um, you know, when you say on the spectrum, I'm literally on the spectrum. So I have a diagnosis of autism and I also have a diagnosis of ADHD. Um, people, anybody with ADHD will tell you that we generally don't think before we speak. We um, jump in where others fear to. We have risk-taking behaviours, you know, they're part of our neurology. Um, and the same thing with being autistic, like a lot of a lot of disabled people have an overinflated sense of um, social justice and also I guess the um, the ability to see things in a different way and in a broader and more systemic way and we're also quite literal we don't necessarily pick up on the cues that other people do about when we're offending people or upsetting people which can be interesting um, so I guess you know one of the things that um, is important is that you know my neurology helps me um, be an activist in that I'm kind of purpose built for that is you know probably something that's a benefit for me um, I didn't just armchair diagnose you either Roland but you know I think a lot of people who sometimes it comes with um, I guess you know the idea around popularity and the way that we're brought up and um, certainly a lot of autistic people feel dreadfully when people don't like them because a lot of people don't like us we're very polarizing characters um, but there's also a bit of a thing with maturity as well where you in the disability sector we constantly have um, polarizing topics that we're dealing with where people have different you know there's conflicts of interest there's um, issues that really need to be pulled apart and unpacked and people are going to have different views about that and if you voice a view which is on the side of something that people don't believe in then you know you're going to be the person that they don't like so I guess with age also comes the um, accepting that you know that people aren't necessarily always going to agree with you they're not going to like you the best you can hope for is that they respect um, your willingness to you know speak what you believe to be truthful it's almost part of your um, persona, isn't it? You, you're a self-described social media assassin, but you you think it's important to be difficult to, to, to challenge, don't you? Yeah, I think so. I think sometimes it's, you know, it's one of those things where we get so polite sometimes and we, you know, we don't talk about the issues that matter in the disability sector. So the areas that I work in around disability and violence and around, you know, institutionalisation and devolution, there are some really tricky issues that really need um, some raw, brutal honesty. And when we're talking at a policy level with lots of men in, in um, suits, then, you know, sometimes we talk about things where we're talking about abuse in terms of administrative errors, for example. And, you know, we need to bring that down to a level where we're actually talking about, you know, people who um, have had real experiences and what our lives actually look like. So, yeah, I think it's important to be, to have those people who are going to work hand in hand with other people who have polite conversations and who talk about policy in different ways. And you, and you talked about people um, with disability not being authors of their own story. What does it look like when they are authors of their own story? 
I think when people are authors of their own story, it looks quite different because um, we've had this we've had this weird narrative about um, you know us being integrated into the world with the rest of you know you people. I'd say you people not knowing around disability disclosure, but do you know what I mean? So there's this yeah. weird idea that you're going to be um, you're going to be the same. The, the main goal is to be like a non-disabled person, which is kind of not possible. My neurology is not going to change. You know, if I had ABA for 20 years, it would not change. Um, if, you know, I have limb girdle muscular dystrophy and use a wheelchair, I'm not going to ever be great on the track and field, you know. So there's a real, there's this kind of underlying thing around, you know, us, we should want to be like non-disabled people. And so I think part of people um, being authors of their own story is actually to talk about the very different experiences that we have because we're disabled. We see things differently. We have different experiences at the hands of people and um, people treat us differently. And so I think when we're writing those stories, they sound very different than they do when they're channeled through the mouths of non-disabled people. Help me out, Sam, with something I've always had problems with, which is that People with disabilities um, should be should have jobs just like everybody else, and should be in a situation where they're economically productive, just like everybody else. But a lot of everybody else hates their jobs. A lot of else, everybody else hates being economically productive and part of the the bigger machine. Where, where do you sit on people with disabilities should be just like everybody else and have jobs, shitty jobs, just like everybody else? Yeah, it's kind of a bit of a it's a bit of a tension for people where. Um, we live on, in a society where we're valued by our productivity. And um, if yeah. you look at the pandemic, I think all of these things have come to light very recently. You know that people are saying, well, it's only the old people and only the disabled people who are going to die. And therefore, we should all just go and open up and, you know, go to the shops and th those people can stay home. You know, <laughs> So um, I, I read a statistic the other day that 43% of people, so it's 43,000 Americans, who have died are people who are in nursing homes. So they're disabled people because you're disabled because of your age. So it's, it's a really striking statistic that, you know, when people are willing to make decisions that impact on public safety, that you're devaluing those people. Um, but I think, I think the, I think the, um, we don't have the same opportunities as other people do. And that goes the same for other marginalized groups, um, you know, like black people and first nations people. Um, where we're not given the same opportunities in employment, in education, um, there's all those sorts of barriers. Um, I think one thing that the recent couple of months has done is, but has levelled the field a little bit on the other side where, you know, you've all become disabled for a while and um, you have no idea how long we've fought for working from home arrangements. So, you know, so everything has changed. People are recognising for the first time that people are segregated and isolated, which is what people experience in institutions. You can't go out to the restaurant anymore. You know, we can't either because there's steps there and I'm a wheelchair user. So I think things have changed a little bit in ways that might actually affect the landscape for people around, for disabled people around employment, or I hope that's the case. Um, I don't necessarily think that everybody needs to work. I think that a lot of people wouldn't be suited for the types of jobs that there are out there. Um, but I think that contributing and being valued and having a place in the world is actually, you know, work of its own. And, um, you know, some of, the, some of the most important lessons that I've had are from teachers who were not working at TAFE or at school. They were intellectually disabled people who had taught me lessons that they weren't paid for. 
So yeah, I yeah. think work yeah. is a subjective kind of concept. You sound um, very optimistic, Sam, about the likelihood of these COVID changes being brought forward into um, into this next stage of whatever life is. And so I guess I've got a kind of two-part question for you. The one is, is do you really believe that a lot of these changes will become more permanent? And the second is, do you consider yourself an optimist? Oh, look, I'm, I'm absolutely a pessimist by trade, you know. So um, I think on the first question, the... The idea that those changes will stay, I think, yes, I have, um, you know, some children who work in IT and I know that they've spent a lot of, you know, they've been working in a lot of places where they've had to set up, you know, some permanent structures around um, ICT and capacity and the ability for employees to work from home. Um, people have changed their policies in order to do things. People have attended to things like occupational health and safety arrangements for people at home. I can't see that those things are going to be suddenly reversed and I think that they're going to be of great benefit to you know women who want to work at home when they have children who are sick for example or um, people who you know you might want to employ an employee who has a specialist skill set in another state why do they need to be in your office so I think that I think that employers have been able to see the benefits of this and I've also done some I guess some snap polls of people around their workplace and um, what that looks like now um, on the second part, um, am I optimistic? No, I'm, I'm a pessimist because, you know, we, a lot of us are, you know, autistic people are pessimistic because we, um, I, think it, I think it's a thing that we do where we look at the worst case scenario and then everything else is a magnificent surprise, you know. So when things go well, it's like, yay. So <laughs> if yeah. you look at the worst case scenario, it's something that risk managers do, right? So if you look at... Um, when my second child was born, um, he was born uh, premature and they said, look, it's unlikely the child is going to survive. We're taking him off to Princess Margaret, to the intensive care unit, da 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 And the only way that I could deal with it is to say, right, this kid is going to die and therefore anything that happens on top of that is a bonus. You know? So um, it was, whereas, you know, his father was the opposite. He kind of said, no, we can't we can't entertain the thought that the child might die. But in order to be able to accept it, um, looking at all of the worst case scenarios actually means that you can prepare yourself and it means that you can look at everything that might go wrong. And, you know, this is what a lot of, um, a lot of us do. We have to be prepared in order to deal with even day-to-day -day conversations around people. So, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a thing that pessimism is... Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's too negative a word to use in the context of, of being a, a, an inherent risk manager, if that makes sense. It does. So, Sam, talking about things going um, the worst they possibly could, the, the Anne-Marie Smith situation in, in South Australia, I just wanted to go there. There was an article very recently in The Guardian, incredibly well-written, articulate, well-meaning article that was laming the blame at the feet of the um, Quality and Safeguards Commission, and it's like... I may not be the biggest fan of the Quality and Safeguards Commission, and I'm not, but I'm certainly not going to be blaming them for what happened to Anne-Marie Smith. Uh, how do we keep people safe in a, in a modern society? Yeah, it's a really difficult thing. So part of, part of the work that I've done over the last 20 years or so is to, um, I guess it's my, my obsessive interest really, is to, to look at 
violence, neglect and abuse against disabled people and to pull those stories apart and to see where things go wrong and where things could be better and improved and who might be responsible and what kind of systemic changes might need to happen in order for that to, to transpire. Um, so, no, I don't think it's a, a simple answer in terms of this is the fault of the Quality and Safeguarding Commission. I don't think it's because they defunded the Community Visitor Scheme. I don't think it's because um, the neighbours didn't think to knock on the door. I'm sure that all of those people are going to be looking very closely at their, their systems and so they should. But I think when disabled people die and they die from preventable deaths and they die from neglect um, and there's system failure on multiple levels that um, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that are really complex and need to be pulled apart. So um, it's not so much about as it is about accountability, I guess. If you think about that model of, um, there's a model around Swiss cheese, you know, the model that they use in health where all of the holes line up through multiple slices of Swiss cheese and then something can fall through all of those holes at the same time. You know, things all just have to go wrong in these different systems at the same time. So I think that happened for Anne-Marie, but I think there's also some very deep lessons that we need to think about, about, you know, why was she not connected with the neighbours? Why did she live a lonely and isolated life? How was this informed by ableism? Um, who didn't care enough? You know, who didn't care enough in their jobs? Who didn't care enough to do police checks or to make sure that she was safe? I think that there's every time somebody dies of a preventable death and they have a disability, that these are the issues that we need to pull apart and they're not easy issues to, to pull apart. It also takes us um, back to where you were a little while ago with um, First Nations peoples and uh, other marginalised people and that sense of otherness. And I, I suspect you understand other at a quite deep level, Sam. Are there benefits to being other? Yeah, I think so. I think... Um, I think obviously, you know, you can have multiple levels of um, disadvantage and, you know, you can be a person who's marginalised in a number of ways because of your race and your location and your disability and those sorts of things. But I think that, um, I think that understanding um, that othering is a really, really important thing to understanding the ways that those systems need to change. Um, I'm very aware and quite uncomfortably aware that Anne-Marie Smith is a very acceptable victim. She's an attractive woman of my age, you know. Um, there's one picture where, um, you know, she looks a little bit like an angel and so lots of white people are, you know, very upset. There's the thing. And so when I say, okay, do you know about Shona Hawkey, a woman who died in a group home of a preventable death, who was in pain for days, who... Um, went to a hospital who was dismissed and left in an ambulance bay who's, um, who's um, the doctor said, look, should we say, save her life because it might not be worth as much as that of a non-disabled person, in, essentially. You know, that woman was Aboriginal. Um, those stories are the ones that don't come to light. So I think that othering, um, there was this quote by Paul Keating which said that um, um, things were done to Aboriginal people in this country because of a failure, to, a failure of the imagination um, for, for people to understand that it could happen to them. And I think that's where this thing comes from, that our abuse isn't seen as abuse, it's not seen as domestic violence, it's not seen because you can't imagine yourselves being, being us. And I think that's one of the key issues that we have around addressing those sorts of issues. Did growing up in Zimbabwe 
have any effect on who you are now and what we're talking about? Yeah, I think it did. I think um, I was deported to Zimbabwe by my parents for being naughty, which is in line. Um, Something's so, haven't changed. So old school. <laughs> so so uh, that's what you did to children back then. You sent them to the distant relative and, you know, to be whipped into shape and go to a third world boarding school. Um, but I didn't really have much experience with um, with black people then. You know, I went to a public primary school. I went to a private high school. Um my friends were different colours. Um, I lived in a, you know, south of the river in Western Australia where we had, you know, Aboriginal people who were friends, you know. And I remember waking up the next morning after getting off the plane and looking out the window and seeing these thatched huts with women with babies on their backs and pots on their heads. And I was like, whoa, everybody was black and I was white. So I think going to school and being one of, I think, four girls at the time in my, in my boarding school, um, who who were white people and being othered you know not just because i was white but because i was australian and just it was a year post independence too in zimbabwe so i think i had quite a a different experience around understanding what this might look like and when i came back to australia i'd certainly had a a new deeper appreciation because as one of those four white girls who was at boarding school um they talked to me as though um i was also you know a person who would speak in racist language, um, you know. So, you know how it goes. You've got the white people around the barbecue and it's quite okay for us to say racist things to each other, so people think. Um, whereas they won't say that in front of somebody who, um, who is black or a person of colour. So, yeah, it was, it was kind of a bit of an enlightening thing for me as, as a very early age. So I understood othering and, at, at, yeah, at a, at a deeper level, I guess. So other yet again... The, the Bolshe Divas seemed to me to be something peculiarly Western Australian. Can you tell us anything about the, the Divas? Do you want to talk about them at all? Yeah, sure. So um, it did originate in Western Australia. I think there was a, a core group of half a dozen of us um, who got together very early on um, out of frustration. And there were people who had, you know, recently worked for Premier and Cabinet and service providers and, you know, we were all disabled people, family members, um, people who were disability rights activists. And, um, and we all just had a burning desire for, you know, this shit to stop. <laughs> so this is just prior to the NDIS. Um, and we wanted to be able to speak in a way that wouldn't compromise our positions um, or jobs or livelihoods or families. And we thought, you know, it'd be great to have an underground um, guerrilla group, I guess, of women who um, could be truth tellers and who could speak about the things that we know that happens on the ground. So, you know, it's kind of, we, we said very early on, there's not going to be a membership list. We did talk about writing a manifesto on the wall and lipstick at one point. Um, and, you know, we came to some point a few years down the track where we had to actually out some of ourselves and that was a difficult thing to decide who would do that. Um, so it was a West Australian thing, but because we didn't have a membership, um, we started to say to people, look, it's anyone who identifies really as somebody who wants to make change, somebody who believes in disability rights, somebody who has a ton of bolshiness and commitment to change things. And so we became this bigger thing where in the same way that some people say sister, we'd say diva, you know, and, um, there is a group of us who have a tattoo of a lipstick kiss on our backsides. Uh -huh. And so I am one of those people, full disclosure. Um, but 
you know, there's, there's also people, the people who do things like the submissions, um, there's, you know, maybe three of us in Western Australia. So, um, and yeah, I think two are from the original group. So yeah, it's, it's a thing where um, we use creativity in a different way because, you know, if you shout at people all the time, then um, that's not an effective policy mechanism. If you put a bit of humour in there, a bit of art, people are more likely to respond in positive ways. We did. We, we spoke to Sam Jenkinson um, about six months ago now on the podcast as well, another Bolshe diva. And I was interested to hear you say before that um, you work hand in hand with some of the other people. I, I can't remember your exact language before, but when we were talking about um, being difficult, you're talking about working hand in hand with others. And it was interesting because in our conversation with Sam Jenkinson, she said almost the exact same but opposite thing that, you know, she she knows when to have a quiet conversation and when to call Sam Connor. So, so um, it, was interesting, it was interesting to sort of hear you say the, the matching part of that. And I guess my question following on from this for you is kind of coming back to that topic about being difficult. Is it difficult to be difficult sometimes? Is it difficult to be the difficult one? Oh, it totally is. I know. It's, it's really... There's a lot line from Calamity, the Calamity Jane movie around being expendable, deniable, and disposable. So yes, it impacts on your um, on your income, you know, on your livelihood, on your ability to get jobs, you know, because people think that you're a risk. So more so because you're a woman, you know, nobody likes mouthy women. If you're a, a crippled, uppity, nasty woman, then you know that makes things a thousand percent worse, right? So it does. Um, but I think then again, you know, we've been really effective as activists um, because people like Sam, who was very involved, you know, very early on and who, who I still have conversations with and other divas have conversations with around, around things. She now heads up a, um, um, the Pete Disability Body in Western Australia. Um, people, if, if people are working together and they have different change-making styles, um, people would be surprised to know how many people are involved every time something happens that we work with politicians and they're not necessarily just politicians on the left. Um, we work with people who, um, who um, have vastly different viewpoints and vastly different approaches from us. Uh, we have conversations when we need to have conversations and it doesn't matter if it's with our friends or not. And, um, you know, Sam is the person who is likely to bring a perspective of, um, I guess, looking at both sides and being, way more diplomatic than I am <laughs> so not not a not a high benchmark there um but then um you know if you have people who are really willing to throw Molotov cocktails and you've also lined it up with people who are willing to have quiet conversations in the background and then some people who work in that area who can drop in the right words and that's actually a really effective team of change makers mm. Sam, can you, I'm, I'm really interested and I, I was around during the birth of um, the Facebook group Grassroots, but I have no idea how it went from um, zero to over, is it how many thousand members have you got at the moment? Yeah, about 50,000 members, 55,000 members. It's a lot. Incredibly powerful group. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis, how, how that took off? Yeah, so that was actually um, a bit of a deeper project early on. Um, it came from a conversation by Sam Jenkinson, actually, who said that, you know, she has always been a really strong activist around peer support being an important thing. And I think her diagnosis has informed that too, because for a lot of quadriplegics, you know, you've lived a usual life and then you break your neck or back and um, 
suddenly you need to learn a whole bunch of stuff, not just about the disability system, but about your body and the way it's going to work, all those sorts of things. So peer support's really important. Um, so she'd maintained when we were very early on um, discussing the NDIS and when it had first been born, um, you know, that we needed to have peer support for everyone. Um, I think Raina Lamb, was, who was uh, Women with Disabilities um, um, WA, president at the time was the person who pressed the create group button and you know is still involved as, a, as an administrator of that group um, but early on we recognized that the best types of of support that we have um, is peer support that's where you make the most change you learn the most things you know we know things that other people in the system certainly other people on the end of the um, phone at the NDIS don't understand um, that we needed to make this happen and we decided to make it a place where the voices of disabled people would be prioritised because they're often smaller, followed by parents and family members. And then, but we, we'd allow everybody into that group so that they could contribute, but they could also learn. So it became this big thing where I think a lot of people hate it, of course, because there's a lot of very brutal honesty going on there. Um, but there's also, you know, there's an immense amount of wealth and value um, from people's lived experience that they're bringing into that group and asking questions and having it answered every day. So yeah, it's a, it's a good group. So Sam, you've, you've done some really uh, um, awesome things in your career. And oh, oh, Evie, we were blown away when Sam rewrote the Royal Commission's website. Can you oh yeah, and if, for those of you who weren't following along at home, I mean, Sam, maybe you can tell the story better than, than I can. Can you tell people what you did with the Royal Commission's website? Oh, yes. <laughs> This is one of those things when ADHD meets rage, right? So, you know, obviously, <laughs> inaccessible language is always um, an issue. You know, we try to make sure that people who are going to be the most effective, affected by something are the people who need to have the most access to something, you know. So, in the case of the Royal Commission, um, you can look at statistics like, you know, that. If you're, if you're an intellectually disabled woman in this country, your life expectancy is 49 years of age, 54 years of age for, for both genders. So we have this wild disparity where people with intellectual disability actually need to be able to access this thing. We've had huge issues with access around the Childhood Sexual Abuse Royal Commission, which I was sort of peripherally involved in. Um, so when we repeatedly said, can we make this accessible to people? And there was just nothing coming forward. I had a, one of my infamous tantrums and just said, fine, um, screw it, I'll just stay up all night and um, take a lot of Dexies and, um, and create a website that's a bit more accessible. And somebody picked it up after I rage tweeted it and, um, and we embarrassed the Royal Commission into, into fixing the website, which is a little bit wonderful, really but probably shouldn't have required that level of work. Um, it's one of those things that I think works well is people quite often accuse us, us of generating outrage, um, but, you know, they don't really look at whether the outrage is warranted. And if the people that this very expensive thing has been built for can't access it, then that's an outrageous situation that needs to be fixed mm -hmm. right now so that we can make this thing work. So, so It was so yeah, funny. So funny. It, when, when I saw that website, it just, it made me go, why couldn't they have done this? No, really? Yeah. Why? <laughs> you know, it just, it was such a clever demonstration of how easy it could be or, you know, how, how important it is and how straightforward it could be. And, and really, I think held a mirror up to the commission in saying, 
what is it about the way you work that made this not possible as an outcome? It was really, really clever piece of advocacy. And I know there was some sleeplessness involved, Sam, <laughs> but how long did it take you to do? Oh, I think 12 hours. Yeah, it was yeah. Yeah, 12, 12 hours and all the coffee. <laughs> it was, um, <laughs> but but I, think, I think it also was um, on, a, on a larger scale, it reflects you know why things go wrong is that when when things are built by people who aren't like us or without you know being really well informed by people who aren't like us and the NDIS is a prime example um that's when things do go wrong you know that um we know that there's a massive underspend for most people and we also know that people aren't happy with the NDIS um my feeling is that you know it's because of that it's not an accessible process still you know, we've had a million reviews around participant pathways. There's a thing. What does that mean? Um, you know, when things are written by people who aren't like us for us, they're going to get it wrong. If it's built by white men in the city who aren't disabled, then, you know, it's not going to fit black women and, you know, people who have different genders, who live in the country, who are disabled. Just nothing about it is going to work. So... I think it's I think it's one of those things that we often deal with on different levels. It's just this happened to be about a about a, a website. So that's where my my rage comes from, I guess. I'm glad we waited so long to talk to you, Sam. This has been fabulous. I'm gonna finish with um probably with no one would guess what the next question is going to be, but <laughs> I'm nervous. <laughs> What's your take on the American race riots? Oh, you know, I'm kind of old second wave feminist who kind of thoroughly approved of people putting bombs in letterboxes. So <laughs> there's the thing. Um, I think that um, I think that this is perhaps a, a natural progression of a natural outcome of not just um, you know the thousands of years of oppression that um, that um, black and people of color, black people and people of color have dealt with, but also um but also an outcome of the pandemic you know that it's been like this enormous kind of um, pressure cooker really where people have had lots of time to sort of think about things and people have looked at these atrocities happening and when you see um a black man being murdered or you know it's it's like a public lynching on you know on social media and people are watching this thing and knowing that they're living in fear anyway. This is the same for us as disabled people, that we're living in fear. You've got that extra thing with COVID being chopped on top. You know, every time you go out, you're in fear. And it just magnifies and intensifies all of those emotions. So I don't think it's actually, I think it's a thing that was probably going to happen. Um, and I think that, I think it's a really good opportunity for us as white people to start looking deeply at ourselves and looking at and starting to listen to the black community and starting to listen to oppressed communities about where where they've been marginalized and oppressed and starting to hold up um, a bit of a mirror to ourselves and looking at our own white superiority and thinking about what we can do personally to make change for other people. That's great, Sam. Is there anything else we should have asked you? I mean, do you have another hour? Oh, that was a question for Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought they were all really, really light on questions, Roland. I thought you were going to ask me some tricky ones. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, the only thing that I'd probably say around, um, um, you know, that, you know, I think that you people in your role 
quite often we look at the disability service sector in um, in a way that you know quite often it's around perpetrators you know and violence and that's also that's a difficult thing because disability service providers hold power over disabled people in a whole bunch of ways but the one thing that I see your organisation doing and, and you people doing is offering the type of peer support that um, I think service providers really need need and I think the same thing applies for the disability service sector where we need to have the smaller voices, the small family support organisations, the regional organisations, the organisations for Aboriginal people. Um, I think they would really benefit from some of the bigger organisations being able to mentor them and to be able to have that information sharing, I guess. So yeah, I just wanted to recognise the good work that you do and to, you know, for people to know that um, we're not always adversarial around um, these issues we do we do work hand in hand under the table quite often with a lot of a lot of providers and a lot of policy makers so yeah and i'm not always scared when i get an sms from sam connor well, actually i am until i read it so. <laughs> it's because we've known each other for a long time roland <laughs> thank you so much sam that has been an absolutely wonderful podcast it's it's been a real pleasure i'm already looking forward to listening to it back yeah, <laughs> Thanks, there sam. might be a lot of edits on this one Thanks so much, Vanessa. Thanks for having me on. Good on you. You've been listening to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations, a podcast by DSC that's produced by MTS Productions. And for those of you that haven't heard, MTS Productions is our fabulous Maya Thomas going solo. We couldn't keep her in the cupboard any longer. <laughs> she, she is set out to run her own production company where she'll support non-profit organisations to do video production voice production, make the CEO look better, which is often necessary, and help participants have a voice on video, in audio, in podcasts, on your website, wherever. So there's a free plug for MTS Productions going solo. And if they wanted to contact her, it'd be... You can find me at mtspro.com.au. That's mtspro.com.au. Thanks. And you might be thinking, producer, Evie and Roland, you don't need a producer, but she, she does... <laughs> She helps Evie come across a lot better than she does. <laughs> you can subscribe to this podcast at teendsc.com.au slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like us, leave us a five-star review. We don't do that anymore. Why don't we? Because no one cares. <laughs> okay, there you go.